0: all. Lord, we just want to thank you for what you are doing in this place right now. Lord, I thank you for this new vision. I thank you for the new move of your spirit right now. Even today, just in that worship, Lord, we just thank you that we can declare you are the way maker. You are the miracle maker. Thank you, Lord. So yes, we are on last part of our vision series. But it's not the end. This is just the beginning, really. This is us as a leadership bringing to you what we feel God is saying right now. And then from this four-week series, we will continue to build upon that vision. So for those of you who haven't been to the four weeks, I encourage you, they are all on the Bethel website, on the podcast. Please listen, please catch up. But just to do a little tiny bit of a recap, Pastor Andrew spoke on the first two weeks on building people. And just how so that's not rocket science, that is just the basics that we are commanded to love the Lord our God with all our heart and to love our neighbor as ourselves ourselves. And that is that building, that looking out for other people and just building each other up. And then last week, I started looking at the building community element of it. We all, as living stones, each of us unique, not uniformed bricks, but living stones shaped very differently. We'll all have our own special part to play in building this house. We talked about how we move from being welcomed as a visitor into the house to belong in and having a contribution and a part to play in this home. Mm-hmm. So, just to recap community, building community. Community is a group of people living in the same place, having a particular characteristic in common and shared ownership. Now, I'm not a very good artist, never been good at drawing, but I loved a good dot to dot. I've been wondering about this all week though. Why is it called dot to dot? It's number to number. Why is it called? Yeah, I know it's got a dot, but yeah, number to number. Anyway, but as from a very young age of a child, I've had to go a couple this week. I've loved a dot to dot because I couldn't draw. Now, a few months ago, I spoke on Loving Puzzles as well. So you can clearly see there is something in my DNA that likes to connect things together. And that's why I've been given the job of talking about the building community part. Because each number on that picture there represents one of you. Every number on there is really important. You can't leave out two, three, and four and connect one and five. There's half a roof missing. We all are important in that image, but what is it that connects those things? Because actually, we can all be here building people and in our own little places doing a really good job as individuals, but we are not about creating little individuals doing a great thing, although that's fabulous. We want us all to come together and be part of something bigger, so how do we connect those dots to make Everything that we do, connect. And we as a leadership feel that, and I've done some research into this, in order to have that connection, you have to have a shared culture. So this next part today, I'm going to be looking at as we move forward as individuals doing a great work, what, the thing that's going to join us is our culture. The thing that is going to join us is what it's going to look like in our DNA when people say, what are Bethel Community Church all about? We're going to be able to say and they're going to be able to see the shared culture. So we're going to look at that today. So looking at Nehemiah, we're going to look at our culture. So let me talk to you a little bit about Nehemiah. He loved Nehemiah on the morning of the fire... Before it burnt down at 6.15 p.m. or started to burn at 6.15, I was in Tesco's, in my car, just about to do my shopping, and God said, read Nehemiah 1 to 5. I was like, now? Now, this doesn't happen to me very often. Don't get me wrong. I don't often have my Bible on the, the seat next to me as I'm going to the supermarket, but that morning I did. And I nearly, I actually put, opened the door to get out of the car and then thought, no, I need to listen. And I read it. As the fire then happened in the evening... It made sense that we were going to have to rebuild. And for the past 18 months, I have spent a lot of time looking at Nehemiah. But I'll give you a little bit of a brief overview of the first five chapters. Nehemiah was a layman. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't a prophet. He was an ordinary person, just like you, just like me. There's no huge miracles that take place in the book of Nehemiah. It's not like the, you read about as Moses led the Israelites out of the promised, into the promised land. Big, massive miracles. We don't hear any of that in Nehemiah. But we can see God's hand in it throughout. And do you know what? God still is a miracle-making God today, Today, but often he works in that unseen. There's no big, huge miracle. Sometimes there is, but he works in the little things. He works in the 40-day journal and weaves those little miracles in every day. So we see Nehemiah, Nehemiah is a Jewish exile. He is a, he's been living in Babylon, and it's about 444 BC. Now, what had happened was the Jews had been exiled again, first of all in Moses, but now they've been exiled in Babylon. And he's been there for most of his life. And as a young man, he had been, become attached to the Persian court. And he'd risen through the ranks, and he was then serving in the king's palace in a very special job as a cup bearer. Now, a cup bearer, if you don't know, means that he had the job of tasting the king's wine before the king drank it just in case it had been poisoned. So, it's not the most pleasant role to undertake, not knowing whether the next drink you're going to have is the last drink you're ever going to drink, but it was such a responsible role. And it gave him favour with the king, it positioned him as confidant of the king, it positioned him a place of honour with the king, because the king trusted him with his very life. And one day, as Nehemiah is serving in that place, he hears an alarming report concerning the condition of Jerusalem and the Jewish community, his community. He'd learnt that his countrymen are there and the city walls are in ruin. They're still not being uh, restored from when they had been burnt and destroyed by the Babylonians. Now, these days, walls and, city, walls and gates around a city means very little to us. We live in a city where there are no walls and gates. But back then, they meant almost everything. It meant that the people were now in a venerable position from enemy attack. And it left the inhabitants open to the enemies. And right then, at that particular point in time, there were enemies circling in the surrounding areas who were looking to attack. So Nehemiah is absolutely stricken with grief at this point. His people, his community, lay in a defenseless, venerable state. And here he is, enjoying the luxuries of living in this palace with favor from the king. Now, he could have gone into a a depression. He, He could have thought, what do I do? There's nothing I can do. I don't know. But he didn't. He turned to God. And he prayed and he fasted for many days. And in that time of communicating with God, in that time of setting time aside, he became burdened to take on this huge task. To rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But how? Because he wasn't his own master. He couldn't just go, all right, I'm going to pop off now and do this for a couple of months. He, as hard and as difficult it was to rise through the ranks in the palace, it was that difficult to get out of the palace. He couldn't just disappear. He had an important role. If he just disappeared, if he didn't turn up one morning to drink the king's wine, somebody would probably come after him. But his favor and his positioning with the king at that time meant that he was, you know, the king saw him often. And the king watched him. And he watched that burden weighing him down. And one day he said, and these are the words of the king, Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? There can be nothing but sadness of heart. And Nehemiah was afraid to respond, because back then it was a capital offence to appear sad in the king's presence. But he replied, why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king says to him, so what do you want? What do you want from me? Now Nehemiah could have come straight because I'm sure he had it planned in his head what he really would have liked to ask the king. But before he answers, he prays. And he asks God to direct him with wisdom. How many of us could do with that lesson? Often I open my mouth. And say things and think, I wish I had prayed. But Nehemiah straight away prays and he humbly then says to the king, If it pleases you and I have found favor in your sight, please would you send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. And he waits. And Nehemiah was astonished because the king not only agreed and gave him the authority to return to rebuild the walls, he gave him the authority and wrote letters allowing him to travel through the areas between there and the walls of Jerusalem where he would face opposition. And then not only that, he wrote him letters of introduction to people who would give him the material at no cost to build. So armed with this royal authority that he has got from the king, with God's favor, Nehemiah, accompanied by an escort of Persian guards, sets off to Jerusalem. And he arrived safely, but it wasn't necessarily easy, and as he passed through Persian areas, he evoked the unrest and the unhappiness of three governors who became very significant later on. Now when he gets to Jerusalem... He goes out at night. He doesn't want any spies to see what he is doing and what he is up to. So he goes out at night, and he surveys the land. He looks at the situation. He takes stock of what it is, and it's a devastating sight. The walls are burnt. There's charcoal, rubble everywhere. They're completely devastated, and he doesn't become overwhelmed with that. Then he rises and he displays great leadership qualities. He calls the people together and he gives them this huge pep talk. I've never been a sporty person, but I can just imagine the changing rooms before a big game in football or rugby. You'll get a pep talk. And Nehemiah comes and he says to the people what needs to be done. He reminds them how God is with them. He reminds them of the generosity and favor of the king. He's encouraging them. He's giving them that pep talk. And then he asks them, To help, he doesn't give them a mammoth task of saying, Right, we're going to set to work and we're going to do this big job, and look, there's all this wall that needs to be built. All he did was ask them to do their little part. Pastor Andrew has talked about step by step. So he said to that family, I want you to build outside your home. He has said to that family, I want you to build opposite your home. He said to that family, I want you to go over there. He takes them a little chunk, not an overwhelming chunk. And he asks them to build, right. Stand side by side, standing together. He calls priests, individuals and groups, fathers, sons, daughters, rulers, goldsmiths, perfume makers, merchants, temple servants. By family name, everyone is recorded. Some, as I said, building just outside their own territory. And some building in a different area altogether. And as they build, with enthusiasm it says, they're excited about this, and we're excited to be building a new thing. The three governors he's come across, Sambalet, Tobia, and Geshem, are jealous, they're insecure, they see these walls starting to be built, they're not Jewish, they know they have no part to play in this, and they, in their jealousy and insecurity, start opposing the work. And there will be, in what we do, when we do good things, there will be jealousy, there will be insecurities that we come across in others that will oppose what we do. They were mocking them, saying, look at them, even the feeble Jews, they're not going to be able to do anything. What, with a pile of rubbish, burnt stones, how are they going to build anything strong? They even said, not not even a fox is going to be able to, like, withstand that wall, a fox could even knock it down. And all these little things are coming. But Nehemiah, what does he do? He prays. He presents these things before God. He doesn't get overwhelmed by these niggles. He doesn't get intimidated by these enemies. He just prays. And then when they realize that's not working, they start seriously threatening violence. And that doesn't work because Nehemiah prays. And he puts people on guards to watch it, like watchmen. Then they start trying to lure him away. They try to get him into, oh, come on, we'll be friends, let's negotiate this. But he's wise to that because he's praying. And then the internal opposition starts. So these people have been enthusiastic till now, but now they're starting to get tired. The rubble is feeling overwhelming. How on earth are we going to build with all of this? We can't do this, they're saying. And Nehemiah says, right, I'm going to call these people back together. I'm going to call them. And you find in Nehemiah 4 verse 14, he says to them, don't be afraid of them. Come on. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Don't worry about what they will say, but remember, focus, keep your focus on the Lord. He is great and awesome. And we're going to fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And when the enemies hear that God has thwarted their plans, And nothing's happening. Nehemiah's like, right, okay, we're going to get back to work. So what did Nehemiah do to keep them united this time? What was different the second time that he then called them and sent them back out to work? Well, in verse 16, it says this is what he did differently. From then on, only half my men worked with tools, while the other half stood guard with weapons, spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. The leaders stationed themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall. The laborers carried on the work with one hand supporting their load and one hand holding a weapon. All the builders had a sword belted to their side and the trumpeter stayed with Nehemiah to sound the alarm. Then Nehemiah explains to the nobles and officials and all the people, this work is really spread out. We're widely separated from one another as we do this work. So when you hear the blast of the trumpeter, who's going to be with me, rush to wherever it's sounding, and then God will fight for us. When we come back together, God will fight to us. So he sends people back to work, but he recognizes they need not only their tools, but they need weapons this time. So as we set our culture... I am going to go through now as a six-step culture, six-part culture that we want to establish. Two weapons, four tools. Our first is a weapon. We are going to be a Christ-centered church. In all we do now, in all we do in the future, God is going to be and will always be, has always been, the center. We're going to talk to him. We're going to pray to him. We're going to listen to his voice. We're going to be guided by him as a body. And God was Nehemiah's focus. He couldn't do anything without God. When he heard that news, first of all, he prayed and fasted. He prayed as he talked to the king. He prayed when opposition came, and he called the people together to collectively pray, to collectively remember the Lord who is great and glorious. And whilst they went back to work, half of them stood watch. And I take that as half of them are standing watch, looking to thwart the enemy, And what we do when we pray is we not only deal with stuff that comes in opposition naturally, but we pray against the things that come in opposition spiritually. So we pray as a church. We pray before this meeting on a Sunday. We gather in that little coffee room and we pray. We pray on a Tuesday night here, downstairs in the basement. We pray as our different ministries are happening. We pray on our prayer chain. Come and see Karen if you want to become part of that. We pray. But remember it said the workers were spread out. And we will be spread out on these walls. We're going to be spread out daily in our homes, in our communities, in our workplaces, in the ministries that come out of here. And Nehemiah's plan was every now and again he would call them together. And that's what we are doing. We can come back together. We can pray collectively in our prayer meeting. We can pray and worship collectively here. We've got this privilege of being able to come together right now. Over the next few months, we might not get that privilege to be able to gather together in large groups. Who knows what's going to happen? But right now, we can. And right now, we will take advantage of that. And then our next weapon, I didn't bring weapons. I've got the tools, but not the weapons. I was a bit scared to bring a sword onto the stage. But our next weapon, I haven't got one either, is is that we will be Bible-based. We will be Christ-centered, we will be Bible-based. And when we read about the armor of God in Ephesians, we have armor which is all defensive, apart from the sword, which is the word of God. And after the opposition, when the enemies heard that God had frustrated the plans and Nehemiah sent them back to work, it says that the builders wore a sword at the side as they worked. Now, we have the word of God the written word of God. And we stand on the truth of that written word of God. We stand on the promises. We stand on the teachings. We stand on the guidance. We stand on the challenge. We stand on on the correction and the encouragement. We don't add to it. We don't take it away. It's fundamentally what we believe And do you know what? I've never done this before in my whole Christian life, 20 years, read the Bible, a plan in a year to read the Bible from start to finish. I'm doing it now when I'm in Deuteronomy, and it is making so much sense. Some of it is really boring, but it is making so much sense. So I encourage you, if you've never done it, don't even try and necessarily do it in a year. There are reading plans out there where you can take two, three years to, to read the whole thing but there is something so amazing about reading it from start to finish. Okay, so what are the tools? We've got those weapons. What are the tools that we are going to use? Okay, so my first tool is my bucket, the bucket of generosity. Now they would have needed buckets, maybe not like this pretty um, luminescent green and grey, but I didn't have like a metal bucket that I could bring today. But they would have needed buckets to clear the rubble, buckets to carry the stones from one place to another, buckets to get rid of the waste, and they would have been full. Now woven into this story in Nehemiah is generosity. There is generosity in Nehemiah's time and his service and his love that he gave to the king. There is generosity in his time and his service and his love and his faith. As he left that role, that security, his love for the, his people, his generosity of time for his people and his faith that he could do this, he could get out of his comfort zone. God was speaking to him and he was going to step into the unknown. There was generosity And we see generosity in the king as he authorized him to go. Here's all the building materials that you need. Here's the favor that you need. You've served me well. You've been generous in the fact that you've risked your life for me. And I am going to reward you. And I am going to send you out there with generosity. And we also... As they are building the walls, and I didn't talk about this at the beginning, but as they're building the walls, they're building it to draw the people back. So the people are coming back to Jerusalem as they're building. And there is a massive disparity between poverty and wealth at that time. So the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And as part of their um, complaint when they're building and working hard, is that they're coming to Nehemiah and they're saying, we're really struggling to feed our families. We're really struggling right now. But Nehemiah, in his generosity, he tells the officials to stop charging interest, to give them back what they have taken from them. As governor, which is usual, he didn't demand money from them and food and and, and drink, and he stopped that. And then he also fed the officials from his own supplies. So he was, like, generous in all that he was doing to build physically and to build the people. And we've talked here now today about new ways that we can give, but we want to create a culture where we're generous. We're generous in our finances. We're generous in our time with other people and our love. We go over and above for other people. Do you know what? It's reported often, and I've heard the statistic thrown around so many times. In churches, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Well, what happens if we are a church that throw that trend right out of the window? What happens if 80% of us do 20% of the work? I mean 20% would lead to do 80 then. Anyway, what happens if all of us worked? All of us works. And you might say, I'm too young. No, you're not. No, you're not. You can have a go. Do you know what? As I've got older in life, and I spoke to somebody about this last week, as I've got older in life, my confidence actually is less. Because when I was younger, I'd never go at anything if I messed up. they think, ah, oh, she's young, she's learning. As you get older, it can be really intimidating, can't it? You step out into something new, and you might not be very good at it. You might not have a clue what you're doing, but you think people are looking at you thinking you should know because you're a bit older. And I actually think, I don't know if men you feel that, but I suppose there are lots of women who feel that. So, guys, if you feel scared now... Just get on with it now, because you're going to feel scared always. So you may as well have a go, and you may as well just let people think you're young. But do you know what? There is a verse, and it's really a verse that's always spoken to me. And I'm speaking to you, young people. It says, do not let anyone think bad of you or think down on you or look down on you because you're young. Be an example in all you do, in your faith, your love, your purity. Do you know what? We need you. We need fresh blood in this place. Do you know what? You might be sitting there and thinking, oh, I can't, you know, I've got children, I'm busy with work, I've done my bit, I'm retiring. Again, no. We need every part of us. We need your experiences, we need your wisdom, we need your life, whatever you can give. You're all living stones to build. I just want to tell you a really little story. That I was a teacher, a primary school teacher in reception. This sums up generosity. There were two little boys, and I watched them one day. And they, one of them was on a bike, and one of them was on a scooter. There was only a little yard, and they were scooting and biking and cycling all the way around, and they came past me, and then they'd stop. And the one little boy said to the other little boy, Have you got a bike at home? No, said the other one. And he said, Have you got a scooter? No, the little boy said. And off they go, and they're cycling around and scooting around. And they come back, and the other little boy says... I've got a bike, and I've got a scooter at home. Why haven't you? Don't know, said the little boy. Off they go again. They come back. The little boy says, one that's got the scooter and the bike at home, says, Which one would you like? My scooter or my bike? Because I don't need both. You can have one. Let me know. I'll ask mum to bring it to school tomorrow. Now... I'm there with my tissues, balling. (laughs) I think I posted a little Facebook post on later on. But that sums up generosity. Why have you not got it? I've got it. Let me give you what I have. Let's be generous. Yeah. Let's be generous in our time. Let's be generous in our love. Let's be generous in our giving into this house. Yeah. we we'll spend our money on all sorts of things. We invest in our wardrobes. We invest in our coffee. We invest in this. We invest in our hobbies. We invest in all sorts of things. Let's invest in this house. Okay, so there is our bucket. Then we've got our spirit level. Mm-hmm. Makes sure that things are nice and straight, ooh, that's built well, there we are, very straight, and that represents honor, I'll explain why in a moment, and we see a culture of honor again throughout the story of the whole of Nehemiah, Nehemiah honored God, he put him first and foremost, he turned to him and he prayed to him, he honored God in his request to the king, he wasn't forceful, he was wise with his words. The king honored Nehemiah. He honored him because of what Nehemiah Nehemiah had given to him. He honored him in his burden of rebuilding. There is honor displayed, and I love this, in the fact that every family name that took part is recorded. And sometimes when we read that, we can read that long list, and we're like, the family of this and the family of that. And I've just got stuck in that so many times because all of those people, all of those names, They were individual people who gave up their time, who gave up their effort to rebuild. And on that rebuilding, we now have a history. On that rebuilding, we, generations to come, have a legacy because of what they did. There is honor in remembering people's names. I'm not very good at remembering people's names. In fact, I'm hopeless at remembering people's names. And that is before I even got to this stage of my life where I now forget lots of things. But there is something, just because you say, I'm not good at it, learn, I've been challenged. Might be not, it might not come naturally to me. And I might have to take photographs of people and write them down. I have to remember people's names. Because our culture will be that we want to treat everyone in a way that makes them feel that they're an individual, that they're included, they're respected, they're valued, that there's no favourites, no-one is excluded. Everyone is on the same level. Whatever job you're doing, whether it's a big job, and import, every job's important, but whether it's Pastor Andrew speaking here, or whether it's somebody cleaning the t- toilets, or whether it's somebody going out to buy the coffee cups, behind the scenes. There is so much. Somebody's sorting out an insurance policy. That the, So thank you, Bob, yeah. that he sorted out an insurance policy that we can now have a rebuild when we build this fire. If somebody hadn't done that really important job, we'd be in a whole different position right now. There is honor in every one of us. And recognizing what we do. And there is honor as well, I want to mention this, when we serve in an area. When we serve, there is honor and commitment. Yes, sometimes things happen and we can't be at a certain place or we can't do it because we're ill or something like that. But if we commit to serving in a certain area, I encourage us to stay committed, to turn up on time to prepare beforehand, to not not turn up at the last minute because do you know what that does? That puts pressure on other parts. And I've got a little story, Katie last year came home from school, she'd hurt her right foot in pee. We had to bandage it. She limped around for about four days when we were looking. That's when she didn't have this miraculous recovery in the living room when she danced around and do her gymnastics. She had a couple of those miraculous healings and then we'd come in and she'd have to hop around. And she was, she was hopping everywhere and she had these little things which she turned into crutches. And then after about a week of this foot now is healed, she started complaining that her left knee was hurting. The limping of the hurt foot had genuinely caused pressure on her left knee. When we don't commit through genuine reasons, we put pressure elsewhere. And if we're gonna build together, let's honor one another in our commitment to this house. Okay, so now we've got courtesy of Alex Pepper, because Lawrence hasn't got a chisel. This is a chisel. And this represents authenticity. It knocks bits off. It allows us, Pastor Andrew has said, to mold, to shape us. It would have shaped rocks so that they could all fit together nicely. And you know what? Sometimes we need a bit of shaping and a molding. Nehemiah was authentic. Nehemiah was real. He was vulnerable. He was honest. And we want to commit to being a body who are honest, real, and vulnerable with each other. Nehemiah didn't hide his feelings before the king, even if it meant risking his life. Yeah. After a while, when the enemy came and he was having those little settled goes, having a go, Nehemiah. Call the people together. He was honest. He was like, look, this is what's being said. This is what's going on. But come on, let us work together. Let's be honest. This is hard, but let us get through this. He gave them that pep talk. He built them up. He didn't keep those feelings hidden because otherwise they would have destroyed the hard work that they had done. And do you know what? Sometimes in our honesty, it's messy. Sometimes in our vulnerability, it is messy. But we need each other to be authentic. In the good times, so that we can cheer each other on, so that we can have those stories of hope. But we need to cheer each other and we need to be authentic in the tough times. Because do you know what? It's okay. It's okay to not always be okay. It's okay to to, to sometimes have doubts. Sometimes in a church community, we wrestle with this. We wrestle with this feeling that we should have it all together. We wrestle with the feeling that if we come forward for prayer, and they pray for us, and nothing changes, and we still feel that way, we feel like a fraud. And we wrestle with the fact that often everyone else looks like they've got it all together, except for me. Do you know what? That's not the case. Brené Brown, who's a research professor at the University of Houston, she has done so much work um, and research into authenticity and courage and vulnerability. She says this, daring greatly, being brave guys, means the courage to be venerable. It means to show up and be seen, to ask for what you need, to talk about how you're feeling, to have the hard conversations. Do you know what? As a Christian, I have prayed and believed for my friend's little boy to be healed of cancer. I was devastated when it didn't work, when those prayers were not answered this side of heaven. I struggled. My father-in-law, we prayed that he would be healed of dementia, or if he wasn't healed of dementia, that we would have a peace in the process. There were months where that just felt like a black hole. I prayed when I completely felt burnt out in my teaching career when I feel like a failure, when I couldn't even gasp and come up for air to even allow me to breathe, never mind slow down, which is what everyone was telling me to do. That's the authenticity I'm talking about. I haven't always had it together. Most of you were here in that journey. Most of you wouldn't have had a clue. It's okay to not be okay it's okay to talk about those feelings. Because then there are the stories of hope. I know a story of a mem right now who's been struggling with postnatal depression, where she feels overwhelmed, but she's been able to talk to another mem who empathises because she is now through that dark hole. I know the gentleman, and do you know what? I have seen this happen time and time again. The gentleman, I know this, who's had a miraculous door opened in a job, Mark, you're another one now today, that he could only have dreamt of, but coming alongside another person then as they struggle in their workplace and are praying for jobs. That great encouragement. The widow who was lost in the isolation of grief, but she's got a friend who's a little bit further in the journey than her, and they've been able to talk through that and bring hope to one another. We need each other. We need to be honest. We need to cheer each other on. We need to celebrate with each other because you know what? The tougher times of life will come to all of us. And we will need each other most to pastorally care and look after one another. And that's where link groups are really important. Yeah. Epic, B, rendezvous. That is where we will pastorally care for each other. This is We Grow is not going to be about Karen and Andrew looking after every single one of us. This is about us as a body looking after each other. In Exodus 18, Moses is trying to look after the people all on his own. There are thousands. He is trying to like mend the dispute and be there for them, and do this, that, and the other. And his father-in-law comes to him and he says, Moses, what are you doing? You are not being effective here at all. This is what you do. You appoint trusted people who you know as leaders to look after the tens, to look after the hundreds, to look after the thousands. That's the model that we have in this church. It might have been done differently before, but that is the model that we have, that as individuals and as leaders and department heads and link groups leaders, we are, and even the people within our link groups, we're looking out for one another. Do you know what? Even in Moses' time, when there were big complaints, they went back to Moses. And sometimes that will happen. There will be things that we will then, as individuals, need to feed back to Karen Andrew, to the leadership. Because extra support is needed. But on the whole, we are here to pastorally care and look after each other. Okay, six points. I've just gone over my time because I timed today. But I'm just going to tell you this last one as well. Okay, it's, it's not a mallet. It's a hammer hammer, mallet, same sort of thing. This is our tool of empowering. We seek to build up and encourage others to reach their potential, that's my passion. I love calling out potential in other people, to reach their potential and be the best they can be. Now a hammer is needed in order to empower to break down those barriers of insecurity. The barriers of insecurity, the barriers of fear that hold us back, they're going to break them down. Because each person was significant. The people who were physically building were were significant. The people who were spiritually building were significant. The people who were keeping watch, every single one of them. The labourers who were legging along, the builders skilled, they were all needed. And last week, Pastor Andrew, or the week before actually now it was, said that we are going to empower and equip you as individuals. Equip means to render something fit for the purpose it was created, because we are God's masterpiece, each of us. Created in advance, long ago, to do the work that he has for each of us right now. And to empower is to give someone official authority or the freedom to do something. In other words, to have a go. So you're all equipped. We're not equipping you. God's equipping you. We can give you like extra guidance and support if you need it. But you're equipped to be on this planet right now to do the job he's called you to do. We will empower you because we will say, have a go. We'll support you in it. We'll look after you in it. Pam, I'm not leaving you all on your own for the kids' work, although she's doing a great job, and actually she could be left completely on her own in like three weeks. But I am here. We will empower you. We will encourage you. Because our responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up his church, the body of Christ. Now, they will be small steps, but our small steps affect everybody else. Our gift... It's not for ourselves, our gift is for the church. So, if you wanna be involved, come and speak to one of us. We will give you something to do. Are you using that gift which God has placed inside you? Do you know what, when Nehemiah listed those people, he listed the jobs that they did. He listed the perfume maker and the goldsmith. And I always liked that, because I was like, oh, they had, I didn't think about it too deeply. I was like, oh, the transferable skills that they used in their workplace, that they could be used in building the wall. That's why they must have been written that way. And that's great, because we can have transferable skills, which we accumulate in different areas of our life, which then all comes together for God's kingdom. But when I was chatting to P.A., when we were putting all this vision together, he went, I like, got a slightly different view to that. Because uh, why was a perfume maker's skills needed to build a wall? And I was like, ah... Oh. Then that got me thinking, do you know what? We write ourselves off sometimes because we've not, we think we're not skilled in a certain area. But do you know what? It didn't mean that they couldn't get involved in lifting rubble. Sometimes we disqualify ourselves from doing what we have the potential to do because you're used to doing something else. Let me repeat that. Don't disqualify yourself from doing what you have the potential to do because you are used to doing something else. Don't ever think there's no room for me. We are inviting you to get involved. We are inviting you to build this community with us. There's room at the table for every single one of us. I've said I grew up in a very close-knit valleys community. We knew everyone. We were connected in relationships. We were involved in each other's lives. People were generous, honored, empowered, authentic with one another. We knew everything in that little street that I lived in. I remember this, if snow came, we'd all be out clearing our patch outside our door. And then working together, all of us clearing that little patch outside our door, we would do the last bit all together because it was a road where nobody lived. and We would do that last bit together. It was great. We'd all be there, having fun, doing it. Snow fell the year before last. My 66-year-old dad was the only one out clearing that street. No one came out and joined him, apart from one man right at the end, who I think felt a bit guilty that he was like in his 20s and my dad was older and was doing it on his own. But he came out and like did the little bit outside his house. Didn't really speak or just did his little bit. No one felt a need to work together anymore. And that's normal in our society today. Let's be different. In this place, let's be different to the norm of society. Not just for the building that we are, the community we want to build here inside, but more importantly for the community that we want to reach outside. Because if people see us being authentic, if they see us empowering, if they see us being generous, if they see us honoring, that will be attractive. That is a community that they will want to be part of, a community that is Christ-centered and Bible-based. Lord, we thank you that you are building your church. We thank you that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We thank you that you are giving us the weapons of putting you first, of standing on the truth of your written word. And we thank you that you have given us weapons and tools to build help us to be generous help us to go over and above help us to honor each other help us to i've had a mind block help us to be authentic help us to just be real and we won't always get it all right Generous, honoring, authentic. Help us to be your church, your hands, your feet. In Jesus' name, amen.